welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Dr. Yvonne Kaysen, who's the president and co-founder of Spiritual Awakenings International and is the co-leader and co-founder of Toronto Awakening Sharing Group. She's had five near-death experiences, two in her childhood and three in her adult life, as well as multiple spiritually transformative experiences, STEs. She's the past president of IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies and is a retired family physician and transpersonal MD psychotherapist, previously on the faculty at the University of Toronto. And she's an internationally renowned medical expert on NDEs and other STEs. In 1990, Yvonne was the first Canadian medical doctor to specialize her medical practice in the research and counseling of patients with diverse types of STEs. She's had 40 years of experience counseling STE experiences and founded the Kundalini Research Network in 1990. And later she co-founded the Spirituality and Healthcare Network in 2000. She is the person who first coined the phrase spiritually transformative experience or STE in 1994. Yvonne has published five books and her most recent, which I read recently is called Touched by the Light, Exploring Spiritually Transformative Experiences. She lives in Toronto, Canada, and she tells me that she enjoys snowbirding during the winter months in Encinitas, California. So a very warm welcome, Yvonne, to Imaginal Inspirations. Thank uh, you. It's uh, very nice to uh, see you here. And you recently spoke for us at the Scientific and Medical Network as well. So I'm going to start by asking you about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, you know, I think there were two experiences that were shaping moments for me that ended up propelling my career into being the first Canadian medical doctor to specialize in counseling people with STEs. And they happened during my medical training. I almost think like the, the higher wisdom of the universe was giving me my spiritual training and pointing me in the direction my future career was going to go when I was going through my traditional Western medical training. So the first experience happened in my last year of medical school. And I'll just keep the story short for today. If people want to read more there, they are welcome to get my book, Touched by the Light, that you mentioned. And I describe all of the experiences in a lot more detail in that book. But in December of 1976, uh, which was I was uh, in my last year of medical school, I took a meditation course and I started meditating regularly to try and relax and study better for my exams, you know, to deal with nervous anxiety with dealing with all the exams. And uh, much to my surprise, I had what I now realize was a kundalini awakening in December of 1976, while I was meditating, I felt this really powerful rush of energy rush up my body and spine. And then it seemed to rush it, it. There was an inner sound, like the roar of a waterfalls. 
and this roaring rushing sound and then I felt the energy rush out through the top of my head and then my point of perception my point of consciousness rose above my head and then my consciousness seemed to expand I was no longer the size of my head or my body but I seemed to be the size of this auditorium that I was in and I was up above and then my consciousness or my sense of self also transformed and I like melted into this feeling, this beautiful feeling of love. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, you know, no wonder people like to meditate. I thought that this was something that all the experienced meditators were having all the time. But now many, it took me years, I would say it took me almost 10 years to be able to find an accurate vocabulary words to put on that experience. I now realize it was a Kundalini awakening which culminated in a mystical experience. But back then, I, I didn't even know what to call it. So being in medical school, I sort of set it aside. But afterwards, I was having many symptoms, which now I know are due to an act of kundalini, recurrent rushes of energy up the spine, recurrent spiritual experiences, energy sensations, uh, many things. The other very powerful experience, and I don't know if the two are related, that maybe one set me up for the second one, happened uh, three years later when I was completing my medical residency. I was on a medevac uh, with a critically ill Native Indian woman in a small airplane in northern Canada in the middle of winter, and the plane crashed. And I had I got out of the plane, uh, it crashed on the surface of a semi-frozen lake. I got out of the plane and had to um, swim to shore. The plane sank in deep water. I had to swim to shore, and I almost drowned. And I almost froze to death uh, during this medevac crash incident. And I had what I now know was a near-death experience. And I experienced, uh, again, I heard that loud sort of rushing, roaring noise. And suddenly I felt my consciousness up above my physical body. But this time it was slightly different because I actually felt an experience like my consciousness was two places at the same time. Most of my consciousness was maybe 20 or 30 feet above my body, but the small part of my consciousness was still in my physical body that was still struggling to swim to shore because I, my body had not made it to shore yet. Anyway, I rose this time into a realm that was filled with light and filled with powerful, unconditional love. And the love was much more powerful than what I had experienced in my, my first, my Kundalini awakening. This was like the most complete, most perfect, absolute love I'd ever experienced. It was a feeling of being home. And although I did not hear words spoken or nobody explained anything to me, I somehow just knew, I, I somehow knew that this love that I was experiencing was the love of the higher power or what I call God, what I'd been raised to call God. And it was not at all what I had been taught that God was supposed to be like. So I was not seeing an old man with a long gray beard sitting on a throne. I wasn't seeing, experiencing that at all. My actual experience was much more compatible to what I now know Eastern religions and philosophies teach. I was experiencing the higher power as this sort of infinite universal force that is underlying, interpenetrating all of creation, all of us, that's infinitely intelligent, but also infinitely loving. 
that it's a it's a, a win-win scenario. Ultimately, we're all going to find our way home, you know, regardless of which particular path we are following. And I somehow knew that what I think of as me would not die if my physical body died, because while I was in the light, it was unclear whether my physical body was going to survive this crash or not. And I knew that what I think of as me would live on regardless of whether my physical body lived or died. So these two experiences in my medical training really impacted me very, very deeply. Shortly after what this experience in the plane crash, I now know was a near death experience. My consciousness stayed up there until my body was rewarmed at the nearest hospital after the rescue. And then it felt like a genie being sucked into a bottle was I suddenly felt myself sucked back in my body as it felt like through the top of my head. And I'd been in this big expansive place up there. And suddenly I was sucked back into the small confines of my body. And a few weeks after, and this had a tremendous, tremendous spiritual impact on me. I mean, I absolutely lost my fear of death. I absolutely was convinced that the soul lives on after death. And thirdly, I became much less dogmatic in my spiritual and religious views because it was just obvious to me, like it was like a veil had been lifted and it was just clear to me that all the world's religions and all the world's spiritual paths, it's like they're all going different paths up the mountain. I have mountains behind me, but once you get to the very top of the mountain, it's the same top that you're seeing. It's the same one God, higher power, whatever, but you just have different perspectives as you're approaching that same peak through different spiritual paths. And a few weeks after that near-death experience, what I now know was a near-death experience in 1979. And again, it took me almost 10 years to find an accurate word to describe that experience. For many years, the best word I found was a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. I I, I called it the mystical experience I had in the plane crash, because back then they used to say, back in the seventies that you had to be clinically dead for it to be a near death experience. Well, I had, I hadn't been clinically dead, so it was a mystical experience, but now they broaden the definition for near death experiences to include when you're facing death or close to death. So it falls under the umbrella of a mystical experience, which was a type of near death experience. Anyway, what I wanted to tell you still was a few weeks afterwards, I had my first psychic experience, which we now know is very common in people who've had near death experiences or mystical experiences or Kundalini awakenings. And, and I had my very first clairvoyant experience. So this was a cluster of experiences during my medical training that I think were pivotal to me ultimately, you know, it took some time, but about 12 years later, 1990, that's when I publicly specialized in counseling and researching patients who'd had these types of experiences. Well, that's incredibly powerful, um, Yvonne. And I think what what comes across very strongly, and it's it's my own conviction as well, is the the sort of ontological reality of these experiences. These are not just hallucinations to be written off. These are the most powerful and formative experiences. And as you say, they're universal across cultures. Yeah, absolutely. And and you see, I was a medical doctor, you know, finishing my residency training when, when my near-death experience and psychic awakening happened. And of course I went and tried to talk with some of my doctor colleagues 
you know, because that's who I worked with every day and that's who my friends were to ask them, gee, have you ever heard of anything like this? You know, do you even have a, a word to call this type of, of experience? Because really, I didn't even have a vocabulary what to call what had happened to me. And um, I was profoundly disappointed because all of my medical colleagues minimized or trivialized what happened to me, that it was a hallucination that, you know, either brought on by a low blood sugar or direct effect of cold on the brain with somebody's theory, electrolyte imbalance was another person's theory. And, you know, thank goodness they all knew me professionally. So nobody said I was crazy, but they still said it was like a, a chemically induced hallucination. And I simply could not agree with that. It did not resonate with me as truth. I had seen many people in my work as a physician with electrolyte imbalances and low blood sugars, et cetera. And they did not that report the sorts. That was not what I was experiencing. And these experiences, particularly the NDE, was so transformative and so positive in its impact and so spiritually elevating. And it also had a psychological growing up impact on me. I mean, we don't have time today to go into all of that, but there were so many positive, permanent transformations that happened in me. And it, it was launching a long-term process. Like it wasn't just, oh, I came home and went back to my normal life. No, I had changed. My interests had changed. I became a spiritual seeker. You know, I started leading a double life. I had my outer worldly life. I had a teaching position eventually when I graduated at the University of Toronto. But my private life, I was a mystic and I was a spiritual seeker. And, and I had like a spiritual hunger that had been stirred in me by having these experiences. And I was reading from diverse spiritual traditions and from the psychological traditions and from doctors, the few that did write about these, like Richard Maurice Buck and William James. I mean, there are a few around right? yet to search, but I found them and Evelyn Underhill and, and, and people like that. But the other thing that was really helpful, and this is probably one of your next questions that, that helped me begin to find a paradigm where I could understand what was happening to me because I quickly found the Western medical model had no explanation that right. would help that would help me integrate what I was personally experiencing. I found yoga and I was introduced to the yogic model of consciousness first from Gopi Krishna, who I actually met in India in 1977. And then later, I was deeply influenced by the writings of Paramahansa Yogananda, who I first read in 1988, and discovered that in yoga, what they were describing as the nature of consciousness resonated with what I had actually personally experienced. experienced. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. So it would be true to say that you know, Gopi Krishna and, and Yogananda were the sort of influential mentors or teachers. Um, yes, I would say they were definitely the most influential teachers, if you want to use that word. And it started with Gopi Krishna because I was introduced to him first. And I actually met him in India and he was like a mentor to me. And I read all of his books, published and unpublished. And he focused very much on Kundalini awakening because he felt that just because of the evolutionary process 
happening on the planet, that it's a time where more and more people were going to be spontaneously awakening Kundalini. And he felt it was very important that the medical community and the scientific community become educated about Kundalini awakening so that people having this experience will not be mislabeled as having a psychiatric illness, which unfortunately is happening. Yeah, it's happening. This sort of education, and is there any any advice or guidance that, that that you remember particularly from Gopi Krishna? Has anything you remember him saying made a real impression on you? Well, many many things, but one thing that I will always remember, and I want to share with you and with um, those listening to this podcast, is uh, he encouraged me very much to do Kundalini research, and I have been doing Kundalini research very much prompted by him actually recently had a publication and explore based on the research done through the Kundalini Research Network, co-authored with Marjorie Woolacott. He's also scared in this series. I saw that, yes. But he used to say, you know, yes, doing the research of the yogic text, yes, researching people are experiencing it today. This is all good. But he said also, do Kundalini research in the crucible of your own consciousness. Mm. Mm. Exactly. Yes. And, and that impacted me very, very deeply. I had no idea when he told me that, that I had already had a Kundalini awakening. I think he was sort of giving me little clues, you know, and because David, as probably many of your previous speakers have said, once you've had a mystical experience yourself personally, you know, (laughs) to your core being in your soul, that we are truly spiritual beings and that consciousness is primary. You know that. So all of our research and studies and explanations are catching up with what we already know to be true because we've experienced it. And I compare this to when I was a child, I was told that the oceans were salty and I lived in Ontario, Canada, where all the water was fresh water. And I used to think, yeah, right. How could the oceans be salty? Every body of water I ever, I, I ever experienced was not salty. And so when my family uh, moved to California, when I was about 11 years old, the first thing we wanted, to, I wanted to do when I hit the ocean was I wanted to go taste the water. And my father laughed and I said, I don't believe it. I have to know for myself. Very good. Is the ocean really salty? And of course, I took a glug. Ah, it's really salty. And and so I now know from direct personal experience, even though I'd read it in lots of books, the ocean is definitely salty. So when someone says to me, no, it's not, I go, yes, it is. And you can argue till the cows come home. I know it is because of my personal experience. And so this is the same for individuals who've had mystical experiences and uh, kundalini awakenings, powerful near-death experiences, they know the spiritual realm is real because they have experienced it. And this is what's traditionally called gnosis, is direct knowing, which is the highest form of knowing. And so reason and and sensory knowledge is is less profound than the experience of gnosis. When you become what you what you are experiencing directly. I mean, there's no, yes. there's no, it's not a spectator sport, put it that way. No, yeah. Now, and, a bit about um, uh, some books that uh, had influenced your um, 
life and thinking. Maybe just talk a little bit more. You mentioned William James and obviously Gopi Krishna and, and Yogananda, maybe the autobiography mm-hmm. of a yogi, um, mm-hmm. which, which uh, uh, because many of my- and I would add to that list, Evelyn Underhill. Oh, okay, yeah. I, would, I, would, I would add to that list, Evelyn Underhill and mysticism. I think these were all in Cosmic Consciousness by Buck. Um, I, would, I think these were all, uh, of course, I've read Jung, what he wrote about Kundalini as well. But I think those were in the Groffs, what they wrote about spiritual emergence. But if you ask me what were the most seminal books in my life, I, I would have to say um, no, the ones that we mentioned, William James, the varieties of mystical experience, religious experience, Gopi Krishna, the awakening of Kundalini, and then Yogananda, autobiography of the yogi. And the, the Underhill, I, I must have read that 40 years ago as well. And I have a, a secondhand copy, which I must have found in the secondhand bookshop. And I was really uh, deeply impressed by that book. It came out in 1911. So a little bit yes. William James. Yes. yes. And and it's interesting that at the turn of the century, there were these people, Richard Maurice Buck, William James, Evelyn Underhill. You know, something was happening at the turn of the century. But um uh, what really impacted me about Evelyn Underhill is that she talked about the long-term transformation process that mystics go through. Mm. And Gopi Krishna had talked about this as the long-term transformation process after one has awakened the Kundalini. And of course, I have been experiencing this. So that when I was reading Evelyn Underhill and she was describing the different stages that a mystic goes goes through, I was identifying with it personally because I was going through those stages. And the other book we haven't mentioned is uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And and, and, um, I got to the point, I read so many interpretations that I would stop looking at the interpretations because I would disagree with them, but I would just read the translation from the Sanskrit and I would resonate on an experiential level. Ah, I know what that is because I've had that experience, you know? And so it's an experiential way of resonating with some of these texts. And as a psychotherapist, an MD psychotherapist in Canada and counseling people who'd had kundalini awakenings, mystical experiences, near-death experiences. By the way, in my own practice, the most common type of experiences people had had that led to them seeking me out were mystical experiences and kundalini awakenings because they're then propelled into this long-term transformation process that both Gopi Krishna and Evelyn Underhill talked about. And of course, modern Western psychology doesn't know about this. No, and it has nothing to do with psychopathology. No, it has to do with, I call it psycho-spiritual house cleaning in my book. It's like when the spiritual energies awaken after the spiritual awakening, there is a natural cleansing process that is initiated. Mm -hmm. So if one has past life issues, if one has unconscious issues from this lifetime, they start being brought up using the words from Evelyn Underhill, they get purgated, they get thrown up into your consciousness to be to be dealt with. And there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean that you're a messed up person. Why are these issues coming forward? No, it means that your psyche 
knows intuitively it's time for you to do this healing and learning around this particular issue. And that is why these memories or these feelings are surfacing now so that they can be worked through, uh, resolved, transcended, so that they will no longer be um, an energetic block to your spiritual unfoldment process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I'm just reading Jung's lectures on yoga Patanjali sutras which he gave to ETH Zurich um, in about 1939, that sort of, that kind of time. It's quite extraordinary the detail with which he looks at these texts. Um, and he's also The Secret of the Golden Flower, it's another one. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. re- really unusual. I don't think there's anybody else, as a, certainly as a psychologist, make, doing these detailed commentaries on oh. sacred texts. I mean, he had an extraordinary mind. (laughs) 400 people would turn up on a Friday evening and and they were were standing room only, as they say. That is just phenomenal. Amazing. Moving on, um, Yvonne, um, I wonder, how does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live your life? I'm sure it has a profound influence from what you've been saying. It, It influences every aspect of my life. So my understanding of our true spiritual nature and of consciousness has evolved. You know, it wasn't like I had my experience and then I got it. It it really, I want to make sure I communicate that, that it's a a process. It's a transformation process. And actually in my next book that I'm, I'm trying to get out within the next year, I'm going to be talking a bit about the stages in the process, because I was starting to say earlier when I was counseling experiencers, I noticed that there are different stages that people go through and Evelyn Underhill talked about this too, but I, I, I found the best model I have found for the sort of stages that people go through and these stages may last five years, 10 years, 12 years, 20 years, even the rest of your lifetime, but there is a progression in the spiritual stages that people go through. And when I reflect on my own life, I use the model of purifying the heart. So that's a teaser for my next Mm -hmm. book. (laughs) But, uh, and that comes from Swami Sri Yukteswar, who was Paramahansa Yogananda's guru. He first introduced this concept of purifying the heart as the different stages one goes through in opening and developing spiritually. But when I look at my own life, I see that that's exactly what happened. And as I had more near-death experiences or more mystical experiences it was like my understanding of consciousness and of my true spiritual nature deepened and it would move me on to yet the next stage and just very briefly just a teeny weeny little teaser you know that that in the beginning after awakening um people enter what's called the propelled heart stage by this particular model and this is a stage of learning you know, reading books, exploring different paths, trying different meditation techniques, trying twirling, trying drumming, trying this, trying that, uh, that, that it, it's an, a really important stage of learning and growth. And this is also a stage where people are embracing their inner healing work, you know, and, and very actively embracing, you know, um, dealing with their shadow, their inner healing, past life memories, all this sort of stuff. But then after a period of time, many people find that they have tasted enough different paths and they have found the one path that resonates with their heart and soul. 
and they decide to commit to that particular path. So that rather than dabbling and exploring a lot of different traditions that now they found one that this one I want to drink deep of. I want to really embrace and commit to this path. And this in the, in the purifying the heart is called the steady heart stage. So then there is this commitment and deepening. And in this stage, there's also a shift from it being about me and me learning and me growing and me healing to it being about us. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and helping others and that we're all connected and it's all a global spiritual community and we learn and grow by helping each other learn and grow. So service becomes a huge part of people's lives as they shift into this stage. I mean, yes, of course, we're continuing to learn and grow and we're continuing to do our psychological work. But now it's the, the focus is going deeper, you know, going deeper on our particular spiritual path, our meditation practice, our prayer practice, whatever it is that resonates with us, but also service, service to others becomes a really central feature of one's life in this stage, selfless service. But there's a stage that many people will come to that comes after that stage. So this continues, the service continues, the commitment continues, so it's additive. So the, the next stage is called the devoted heart stage. And this is the stage of surrender. And this is the stage where one's inner reality slowly becomes more important than the outer reality. And this happened to me after my near-death experience in 1995. I had a profound uh, near-death experience in 95. I write about it in my book. And I had a communion experience afterwards where I remained in a state of mystical communion for two months. And, but I couldn't sustain it. And eventually I lost the ability to be in that state of communion. And I have been seeking it ever since because it showed me that what the mystics and saints have talked about is really true. I experientially knew it's possible for a quotes, normal person like me, you know, that we don't have to be somebody who meditated in a cave in Himalayas for 40 years. It can happen to ordinary people too. And um, it's like, I was given the taste of a carrot and now I wanted that carrot. And yeah. yeah. And, and so it, my, my inner spiritual life became the most important thing in my life. So although I continue to serve, which I do, you know, I'm, I'm president of Spiritual Awakenings International, which is unpaid volunteer work, lots and lots of hours, as you know, and I'm committed to my path, but it's what is your top priority? And so the shift has become that my top priority is my inner relationship with God, as I understand it, and my spiritual practice and my spiritual deepening, and that everything else is still there, but it's secondary to that. So this is a, a shift that happens. So when you ask me how have my experiences changed my life, well, they changed my life in different ways, in different stages of my life, in different stages of my spiritual path. Now, that's a wonderful answer. And I'm sure people will find that enormously helpful because not, nothing happens all at once. It's a yeah. slow, transformative process. Now, coming, coming on now to um, 
the question about is there a proverb or that you live by or a favorite quote? I was thinking about that. And of course there are several, but the one that leapt to mind first was the prayer of St. Francis. Ah, wonderful. Make, make me a channel of your peace. Make me a channel of your love where there is injury or darkness, Lord. Uh, where is injury or... Oh, now I can't, now I can't say it when I'm trying to quote it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, anyway. A reference in the, in, the, in the show notes to where people can find the prayers. Yeah. St. Francis, yeah, has, has touched me very, very deeply. And particularly the, the time, the whole, the many, many years I was very much in that stage where service was my number one priority. Yeah, that, that, that was like my daily prayer, the prayer of St. Francis. And as I've been shifting now more into a stage of surrender, just the simple words of Christ on the cross, thy will be done, you know, thy will be done has become a very, very strong affirmation for me. And I, I go within in meditation every day and I surrender and ask to be God's instrument. And then the last part, thy will be done. Yeah, sometimes it's I, easier, sometimes it's not as easy. <laughs> no, I, I think that's very profound because I, we have to find this balance between surrender and activity. And there mm -hmm. are times to surrender and there are times to be active. And we, but the discernment is knowing exactly when these times are um, mm -hmm. sort of active and passive, as it were. And then finally, is there any advice, Yvonne, that you give to your younger self? <laughs> that I would give that. to my younger self? <laughs> I would say my advice to my younger self is trust. Trust in the divine plan, that trust that spirit will give you those people and those opportunities that are right for you so that you can express what it is inside of you. And then uh, the other thing I would say is don't be afraid. You know, don't be afraid that, um, yes, you will get obstacles. Yes, you will get resistance, but that's just the nature of reality. And there's much joy in following the path that spirit has guided you to take, even if it's the path less traveled. <laughs> very much so, very much so. And I, this is interesting because I think a number of my other guests have also focused in on trust and in terms of the advice they give them today younger selves uh, mm -hmm. and also what you said uh, about being fearless and, and really mm -hmm. committing to to your path which i think is so important mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely well yvonne thank you so much for sharing your inspiration and wisdom uh, i'm sure that listeners will find there's a great deal to reflect on and, and to apply to their own lives uh, mm -hmm. and so um, it's been a wonderful conversation and i look forward to our further contact yeah, thank you, David. It's been wonderful to chat with you.